You can turn with me to chapter 7 in your Confessions of Faith. Um, We're now at the doctrine of God's covenant. So I'll read the three paragraphs in chapter 7, and then we'll have a look at the doctrine of God's covenant. Chapter 7, paragraph 1, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterward by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain, uh, did obtain life and a blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. So here we have the Reformed Baptists or the particular Baptists entry in the confession concerning the topic of covenant theology. And we can never, um, we can never underestimate or um, sort of bring down the, the topic, uh, the significance or the importance of the doctrine of God's covenant. Covenant theology is something that is not simply confined or consigned to being um, one of a number of columns in the building of systematics, if you will, but rather it is the architecture itself. Uh, covenant theology is simply the story of the Bible. Covenant theology is simply the story of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bringing glory to himself by the salvation of the elect through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And all of those historical covenants, all of the covenants that we have in Scripture, uh, serve that grand redemptive purpose to bring many sons to glory through the saving work of Jesus Christ, and ultimately and finally unto the glory of God. Uh, many, many theologians, including Jim Renahan, for example, use the, use the word architectonic to speak with regards to covenant theology. It is the organizing and unifying principle of the Bible and of theology. If we, if we consider the Bible, really the movement of the narrative from Genesis is towards, uh, is towards covenant, the giving of the covenant of works to Adam in the garden, And then after that, it is with respect to covenant, moving to that full discovery in the New Testament with respect to the final revelation, if you will, of the covenant of grace. So again, to say covenant theology shouldn't be confined or consigned to being uh, one of a number of theological columns in the architecture of systematics, but it simply is that very architecture. 
Um, so it's an important topic as we, uh, as we read our Bibles, as we do theology. The confession itself, uh, while we have of God's covenant explicitly stated as the chapter title for this, we must note that covenant theology is, is there, is present from beginning to end, and is certainly, uh, certainly is a multitude of threads that, uh, that bind uh, the tapestry together. Um, there are some similarities with respect to the doctrine of God's covenant uh, in the Second London Confession, similarities to the Savoy before it and the Westminster before it, but there are more differences, and that is for a specific reason as that we'll note as we move along. For example, Renahan writes, when viewed against the the Confession, ours versus the Savoy and the, the, the Westminster Confession. When viewed against the context of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Savoy material, one is able to see that the Baptists sought to retain the notion of covenant theology while at the same time framing it in a more historical cast. Um, the, the, the particular Baptists, no doubt with the benefit of time, but not just that, um, sought to be more faithful to the scriptures with respect to their covenant theology. Um, un, uh, maybe um, unprejudiced by uh, a desire to find a theology to match a practice, the Pado-Baptists were more faithful to the biblical witness with respect to the covenants. Would, would somebody be able to grab me a, a tissue for my nose if that's uh, it's okay? Thanks, Steve. I don't know where that came from, but, uh, but there it is. Sorry, people who are listening, and sorry to all of you. for. Um, so there, is, there are some, thank you, there are some similarities. There are some similarities, but there are more notably differences. If you were to compare, uh, and I have it in front of me here, um, but if you were to compare the three confessions, there are similarities in paragraph one, but then there are dissimilarities starting with paragraph two, which is three in the previous confessions, and then our paragraph three compared to five and five and six in the previous confessions. And we'll note those differences because they are important as we move along. So there are some similarities. We want to note that the particular Baptists didn't depart from covenant theology. There are many similarities that are retained amongst uh, um, or in comparison with and in concert with our Reformed brothers and sisters, but there are notable departures within the larger framework of, uh, of covenant theology that represent a more, uh, more wholesome, more faithful representation of what the Bible speaks to with respect to God's covenant. Uh, so more on that as we move along. J Jim Renahan also notes that uh, covenant theology is, is integrative not only in the Bible but also in our in our confession of faith, and hopefully a little bit, a little bit of that will, uh, will come out as we move along. There's an important connection uh, more at, with, a, with a closer proximity here uh, between chapter 6 and chapter 7 with regards to the Baptist changes in chapter 7 um, and the covenant of works. When, when Jim was working through chapter 6, the, the, uh, the Baptists in chapter 6 have much more to say about the covenant of works than, our, um, than, our, than the independents and the Presbyterians before them. The 
Presbyterians and the, and the independents have more of the covenant of works in their chapter on covenant theology, whereas the Baptists don't. But that's because the Baptists place the covenant of works more prominently um, in the chapter that concerns the fall of man. And so there are a number of differences between the Baptists chapter 6 and, uh, and the predecessors chapter 6 and the Baptists spend more time on the covenant of works there because in large part chapter 7 is, uh, chapter 7 has to do less with covenant theology largely speaking and more to do specifically with the covenant of grace in particular. Uh, there is reference to the covenant of works but it's within the context of uh, emphatically declaring the Baptist doctrine of the covenant of grace. Just very briefly, a definition of covenant, largely speaking, and then more specifically as it pertains uh, to covenant theology in the Bible. This is Sam Renahan on sort of a, a, a general definition of covenant. A covenant is a sanctioned commitment defining the relationship between two or more parties. Just, just one more time, a covenant is a sanctioned commitment defining the relationship between two or more parties. More specifically, Nehemiah Cox, with regards to the Bible and covenant, uh, a covenant is a declaration of his, that is God's, sovereign pleasure concerning the benefits he will bestow on them, the communion they will have with him, and the way and means by which this will be enjoyed by them. Now, Moving on, um, just still by way of introduction, throughout the confession, there are a number of explicit references to covenant and covenant of grace, both covenant of works and covenant of grace. And then there are a lot of implicit references to covenant relationship between God and man. In chapter 1, for example, if you turn there uh, for a moment, in chapter 1, right at the outset, with respect to the doctrine of the scriptures, we read, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Now, to our point... Note, therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. Now, that will come up uh, as we look at paragraph one and as we move along with the doctrine of um, reveal, not the doctrine of reveal, but the language of reveal and revelation relative to covenant. But turn to chapter two now, the doctrine of God. And we've rehearsed a number of times that wonderful statement that ends the chapter on theology proper, on the doctrine of God. Uh, at the end of paragraph 3, we read this language, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. That language was used um, uh, on a number of occasions by John Owen within the context of covenant between God and man, specifically with regards to both the covenant of works, uh, but more specifically with regards to the covenant of grace. So the doctrine of God is, of course, um, 
resting foundationally behind the doctrine of the covenant. And God and covenant, those doctrines come together in this idea, this blessing, this blessed reality of our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. So there's an intimate link between the doctrine of God, of course, and the doctrine of covenant. Um, no doubt other chapters, uh, other locations in the confession, there are explicit references, for example, to the covenant of redemption in 8.1 and 8.5, as, well as, um, as well as here in, in our chapter, chapter 7. Uh, justification, um, chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, um, explicit references with regards to the covenant of redemption. Um, there are some implicit references, of course, to the covenant of works in 4, 3, 6, 1, 2, and 3. Um, explicit covenant of works references in 19, 1, and 6, and 20, verse 1. And then explicit covenant of grace references after chapter 7 in chapters uh, 14, 15, 17, and 18. So, the doctrine of covenant theology, the doctrine of God's covenants are repletive in, um, here in the Confession of Faith. Just very briefly, and then we'll move into the meat and potatoes, an outline of the chapter very simply um, with some, par some paraphrasing of Jim Ranahan uh, with regards to the chapter outline. But chapter 1, the necessity of covenant, uh, excuse me, paragraph 1, chapter 7, paragraph 1, the necessity of covenant, paragraph 2, the necessity of a covenant of grace, and then paragraph three, the revelation of the covenant of grace. So necessity of covenant, the necessity of a covenant of grace, and then the revelation of the covenant of grace. The first thing that we want to look at from the chapter is the ground of covenant necessity. The ground of covenant necessity. Now when I say that, and when we say the necessity of covenant... We're not saying that God is by nature required or somehow obliged to enter into covenant. There is no natural requirement on the part of God to covenant with man. As we'll see in the language of the confession, he voluntarily condescends by way of covenant. So what do we mean when we talk about the ground of covenant necessity? Well, notice the language in paragraph 7 excuse me, chapter 7, paragraph 1, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could, notice this language, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. So the necessity is more, is not more, the necessity is manwards. If man is to obtain the reward of life, God must then therefore condescend voluntarily, sovereignly, and according to his good pleasure, um, and express himself by way of covenant. So the ground of covenant necessity, with this language uh, in view, the distance between God and the creature is so great. Negatively, we want to note that the ground of covenant necessity is not because of the fall. Now, we'll get to th that with regards to the covenant of grace, because that is because of the fall. But with covenant largely speaking, the necessity or ground of covenant necessity is not because of the fall. The confession here clearly states that positively it is because of the creator-creature distinction. Notice again the language. The distance between God and the creature is so great. 
So the ground of covenant necessity is the creator-creature distinction. There is that, that grand and unbridgeable ontological chasm between God and man. Uh, we are not in the same category of being. We're not in the same uh, we're not in the same sphere or universe of being. God is pure act and we are becoming. God is God and we are creature. He is creator and we are that which he has created. And so if there is to be, and there's another thing that, that conditions this, if you will, if there is to be the reward of life, God must voluntarily condescend. But with respect to the creator-creature distinction, and covenant, uh, Renahan notes, citing Nehemiah Cox, the divinely chosen vehicle through which contact and communication would be made with humanity is covenant. The divinely chosen vehicle through which contact and communication would be made with humanity. So first off, with regards to the, the creator-creature distinction, a, a quote from, uh, from Bovink. Nevertheless, and this, what's in view is not so much man's finitude, though that is somewhat in view because we're talking about the creator-creature distinction, but more specifically God's infinity and his incomprehensibility. Uh, this is, this is Bovink. Nevertheless, the doctrine of God's immutability is highly significant for religion. The difference between the creator and the creature hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. All that is creaturely is in process of becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, in search of rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest only in him who is pure being without becoming. Christian theology frequently also expressed this last point in the terms of pure actuality. So what is the ground of covenant necessity it is the creator-creature distinction. Also notice that there's connected to this, and because of this, the obedience that is due based on that. Notice the language here. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him as their creator, by virtue of our creation by virtue of God being God, the creator being the creator, and us being the creature, we by nature owe obedience unto God. That's why the next clause comes that we can't as creatures, um, we, we're not, we don't deserve reward by virtue of our obedience to God and natural law. We don't deserve a reward there is a distinction between merit and deserving. And that's why we have this next clause, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. So we have the creator-creature distinction. We have the fact that we simply owe obedience to God by virtue of us being creatures. We are unprofitable, unprofitable servants, and when we have done what we are to do, though obviously we do it imperfectly, if we, are, if we do what we are obligated to do, we have just rendered our service. We don't merit any reward. Notice, uh, you can notice in chapter 22, um, the doctrine on, 
the doctrine on uh, religious worship in the Sabbath day. Notice this language here with regards to the, the, the creator and his creation and the light that that brings to the creature. We could speak with regards to, to natural revelation and, and natural law, but we won't spend a whole lot of time on that. Only to emphasize this point, the creator-creature distinction, but then the obedience that is to flow by virtue of that. The light of nature, chapter 22, paragraph 1, shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. This is something that comes simply as a creaturely obligation to be rendered unto the Creator by the simple fact of creation itself. Without covenant yet expressed, without covenant yet revealed, man owes obedience to his Creator. So that's, that's natural law um, and natural revelation, but then we have this special revelation or supernatural revelation or positive law that comes on the heels of those clauses. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will. So back to, uh, back to chapter 7. We just, want to, uh, we just want to note then the ground of covenant necessity negatively is not because of the fall, but because of the creator-creature distinction. And when we say covenant necessity, we're talking about covenant, largely speaking, God condescending to communicate and commune with man by way of covenant. So the ground of covenant necessity is because of the creator-creature distinction, and secondly, because man cannot, by obedience in that relationship, attain the reward of life. There must be some voluntary condescension on God's part, and of course, the confession says that that's expressed by way of covenant. So secondly then, covenant and the divine nature. So the ground of covenant necessity first, but now secondly, covenant and the divine nature. We want to make a note here at the language of voluntary condescension, uh, because some have, have perverted the language a little bit or used it in the service of bad theology. Um, the language here says, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. We want to note first under this head, covenant and the divine nature, that the voluntary condescension in covenant expression does not require nor bring about change in God. So, Whatever that, not whatever that voluntary condescension is, because it is simply revelatory, it's revelation, it's expression, it's God-pleasing to communicate, um, to set up this economy, if you will, of communication to humanity and contact with them. But voluntary condescension does not mean some sort of ontological condescension, that is the doctrine of being, that God in some way changes, whether it's with loss or whether it's with addition or whether it's, you know, uh, somehow with both. The covenant expression in voluntary condescension does not require nor bring about change in God. Some have used the language of voluntary condescension to press that point. Um, just some examination of 
some bad theological statements by some who have sort of jumped onto either that language explicitly or the concept generally to propose that there is change in God. Uh, one man writes, he remains who he is, but decides to be something else as well. He decides to be the God of the covenant. It was, to be sure, a monumental decision. It changed the mode of God's existence for eternity. He began to exist according to relationships at extra or outside of himself, which had not been the case before. Hopefully you see the problem with that, the immense problem with that statement. First off, he decides to be the God of the covenant. God doesn't decide to do anything. Um, he's God. He's immutable, eternal, eternal, infinite, a most pure spirit without body parts and passions. Um, the language of he remains who he is, but changes, <laughs> um, is, is simply paradoxical and contradictory and against everything the Bible says with regards to God. Um, it changed the mode of God's existence for eternity. He began to exist according to relationships outside of himself, which had not been the case before. So God's immutability is shattered. But not only that, we are worshiping then a creature and not one who is purely God because he has changed relative to creation. He, he is not what he has been from eternity, but rather has changed, has made this monumental decision to exist according to another mode for eternity. Um, so we won't elaborate on the, the heap of problems, but suffice it to say that that's very problematic. More to the point of this language of condescension, the same man writes, once God condescends, we should recognize that in taking to himself covenantal properties, which is a, a, a fanciful and novel term that we ought not to use, he takes to himself as well the kind of knowledge that accrues to these properties. Or to put it another way, one of these properties that he takes to himself is the development of knowledge that is conducive to his interaction with his creation generally and specifically with his people. So what he's saying, tragically, is that God develops in his knowledge, that he is perfect with respect to knowledge prior to creation and covenant, but for the sake of creation and covenant interaction, he somehow progresses in his knowledge along with creatures. That's closer to open theism than it is to the God of biblical theology, uh, the God of the scriptures. One la uh, two last briefer quotes. Briefer a word. Um, God is changeable in relation with his creation. In this relational mutability, God does interact with his people in the experiences of their lives as these unfold in time. So God is changeable is the statement. The same man says that God is immutable, but is changeable. He's immutably mutable. Um, a contradiction, obviously, and one that we should stay far from. Uh, one last one here um, with respect to, oh, one man uses that term, uh, the, the, the student of that former master previously quoted, relational mutability, a distinction between God in eternity and God in time. That God, before creation and condescension by way of covenant, changed himself in order to create 
and in order to engage in covenant. But that is not the God of the Scriptures, and that's not the God of chapter 2. Remember, that same God of chapter 2 is the God of chapter 7. The one who voluntarily condescends and expresses himself by way of covenant is the eternally timeless, changeless one. He does not change, but God is, as our confession states, immutable, uh, eternal, a most pure spirit, uh, uh, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his glorious perfections. So um, just a couple quotes with re regards to this reality of the, uh, the, the unchangeability of God, um, a, couple, uh, a couple witnesses to that, particular, uh, to that particular reality that it looks like I didn't uh, copy and paste into here, Gregory. Oh, there we go. Um, first off, Gregory of Nazianzus, for if God was not always what he now is, he certainly changed either from the better to the worse or from the worse to the better. And of these assertions, the impiety is equal either way, whichever statement is made concerning the divine nature. So if God is immutable and changes, then that's for the worse, because he has now put on, if you will, mutability. But if God somehow adds to himself, then he was somehow worse before, because now he's better, for he's added to himself. And as he says, the impiety is equal either way. It is impious to suppose any sort of mutability in God. Charnock writes, uh, I said mutability, right? Not immutable. Okay, I think I did. We'll rewind later. For the better or for the worse, this is Charnock repeating Gregory of Nazianzus, for the better or for the worse, if for the better, then he must not have been infinite in perfection prior to the change and therefore was not God. If for the worse, then he would no longer be infinite in perfection after the change and therefore no longer God. So we know that this voluntary condescension does not mean God changes, but much rather it simply means that God expressed or revealed himself in a particular way to man. It's a revelatory condescension. It's not an ontological condescension. Thirdly, covenant as revelatory condescension. Notice the language here uses, uh, the language in paragraph one uh, states, after voluntary condescension on God's part, note, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So this voluntary condescension isn't a change in the being of God, it's simply a change relative to creation that God is expressing himself to man uh, uh, by way of covenant. It's a revelatory condescension. Now when we, when we use that language, revelatory condescension, we can use it in two ways which are kind of connected. In one sense, uh, revelatory condescension is necessary because God is God and we are creature. He stoops to accommodate himself to man when he reveals himself supernaturally to us. Um, we, we, he uses those anthropomorphisms in Scripture where he talks about, uh, you know, where he ascribes wings to himself or, uh, or arms or a, a hand and, and eyes and those sorts of things. God stoops to our... Uh, finitude from his infinitude in order that we might understand his revelation to us. 
Also, with regards to revelatory condescension, we can see that as God voluntarily expressing himself by way of covenant in order that man may have the reward of life. Um, and so these are no doubt connected, but it's sort of in that latter sense that we, uh, that we see it used here. This language of revelatory condescension in, in covenant, or that covenant is uh, revelatory condescension, we see the word express, we see the word covenant, uh, and then later make, offer, promising, revealed, and then also revealed afterwards in, this, in, in only this chapter. So this voluntary condescension is revelatory condescension where God uh, stoops to man's creatureliness and uh, makes contact and communication with him. Fourthly, Moving on to paragraph two, the occasion and nature of the covenant of grace. So notice the occasion and nature of the covenant of grace. And first off, due to man's fall into sin and having violated the terms of the covenant of works, the Lord is pleased to make a covenant of grace. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. Um, so this, this language of moreover connects the flow and speaks now specifically of the covenant of grace. And so this is, the, the necessity in this case is because of man's fall. The necessity of the covenant of grace is because man has brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, by violating the law of God, by violating that particular precept not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, which with it, no doubt, was a violation, as some have acknowledged, uh, of, the entire, uh, of the entire moral law that was written upon the heart of Adam and Eve by virtue of their creation. So due to man's fall into sin, having violated the terms of the covenant of works, the Lord is pleased to make a covenant of grace. After the fall, this is John Owen, he entered, that is God, entered into another covenant with mankind, which from the principal nature and end of it is commonly called the covenant of grace. So the covenant of grace comes upon the heels of the fall, man having violated the terms of the covenant of works, which the divines here in the second London uh, Confession of Faith bring out in chapter 6. More, uh, more largely than their predecessors at the point of the covenant of works there. Secondly, under the occasion and nature of the covenant of works, the divine action in the covenant of grace. Notice after it pleased the Lord to make a covenant. Well, first of all, let's just stop there for a moment. Um, it pleased the Lord. That, that is divine action. It pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. It's sovereign good pleasure on the part of God. Remember, God not obligated, obligated naturally to condescend, to, to commune with man, to uh, communicate to humanity by way of covenant, but nevertheless, it pleased him to do so from, uh, from that, the immutable love of God, uh, from the everlasting uh, grace and mercy of God. No, so notice the language. It pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace and then wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. So we have this divine action 
in the covenant of grace. As, as Jim has often said, it's God who seeks man, not man who seeks God. As we trace the, the biblical narrative, it's always God that voluntary con voluntarily condescends according to His good pleasure to bless man with communion and communication. It's always God seeking man, not the other way around. So there is expressly and exclusively divine action in the covenant of grace. Whether it's by virtue of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the giving of the covenant of grace, freely making that covenant of grace, or whether it's with the champion of the covenant of grace, the incarnate Son of God, who comes and perfectly and substitutionarily saves His people uh, from their sins. So divine action in the covenant of grace. It, pre it pleased the Lord and He freely offers. Thirdly, under the occasion and nature of the covenant of grace, we have man's response to that which is offered in the covenant of grace. Notice the language here, requiring of them faith in Him that they may be saved. Now, when we use this language of man's response, we're, we're obviously framing it within the safe confines of Reformed soteriology because notice the language continues that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So God makes this covenant with uh, God. Uh, uh, God freely offers salvation by Jesus Christ by means of this covenant of grace that He was pleased to give. He requires faith uh, on the part of man, but it is the very faith that He gives him those who are, uh, those who are ordained unto eternal life. So requiring of them faith in Him, making them willing and able to believe, and so they do believe and they lay hold of the Son of life. Fourthly, with regards to the occasion, and lastly, with regards to the occasion and nature of the covenant of grace, we notice the divine provision in the covenant of grace. This language after we read, requiring of them faith in Him that they may be saved, we see here, and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So we have the divine provision. Not only do we have divine action, but we have also divine provision. He promises to give His people his Holy Spirit, uh, that Spirit which makes them willing and able to believe. And this is where we see covenant intimately linked to the chapters that follow in the confession of faith. Because right upon the heels of chapter 7, we have chapter 8 of Christ the mediator, the mediator of the covenant. He comes as the one promised according to the terms of the covenant of redemption. He comes and He perfectly, uh, he exercises perfectly obedience, uh, perfect obedience to his covenant terms that were established for him, that he would become incarnate and that he would perfectly secure the salvation of the elect. He comes in due time as the champion of the covenant uh, to, perfect, uh, to perfect and to complete the covenant of grace, ratifying it in his own blood. After that, we see the covenant blessings coming out. We see a chapter on free will, which isn't somehow detached and just lurking in the ether of theology, but it's placed there properly 
because then we have the blessings of the covenant coming to that one, uh, that one who is saved from out of the darkness of, uh, of slavery to a sinful will. The covenant blessings come, and so from chapter 10 onwards, we see the movement of covenant blessings being poured out by God upon his elect. So it's, uh, hopefully we can see here how covenant theology is, does bear that, that architectonic nature. It's the architecture, it's the organizing and unifying principle of, uh, of theology and, and of, the, of, Bible, of, God's dealing, of the Bible of God's dealing with man. Fifthly and lastly then, we want to notice the revelation of and composition of the covenant of grace from paragraph 3. The revelation of and composition of the covenant of grace. Jim Renahan notes, this is a wonderful redemptive historical overview of the covenantal purpose of God in the gospel. There's a, obviously and explicitly an intimate link between covenant theology and the gospel because covenant theology is for the purpose of the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a wonderful redemptive historical overview of the covenantal purpose of God in the gospel. The importance of the term revelation used here cannot be underestimated as we compare it to the paedo-baptistic confessions of faith at at this particular chapter of God's covenant. The Baptists use revelation. They do not use the language of administration uh, or dispensation like their paedo-baptist forerunners. They use the language exclusively with regards to revelation, and that's uh, for a particular purpose. Um, uh, this is Nehemiah Cox with respect to, uh, um, with respect to this language. It lacked its solemn confirmation and establishment by the, by the blood of the, the only sacrifice uh, which belonged to it with respect to, with, uh, with respect to the, the covenant of grace and formal establishment. Before this was done in the death of Christ, it had not the formal nature of a covenant or a testament as our apostle proves, Hebrews 9, 15 to 23. For neither as he shows in that place would the law given at Sinai have been a covenant had it not been confirmed with the blood of sacrifices, to that end, the promise was not before a formal, a formal and solemn covenant. What he's saying is one of the reasons for the, for the use of revelation and the removal of the language of administration is because the covenant of grace was not properly and formally a covenant until it was fully discovered in the New Testament by the ratification of Jesus Christ. That's why there can be no administration of the covenant of grace before it's formally established in the New Testament. There, there, is, um, there is an identity to, uh, a measure of identity to the covenant of grace and the New Testament, but there is also distinction, as Denault says, without separation. The distinction is that the covenant of grace was not, again, properly and formally a covenant until it's ratified by Jesus Christ. It had a promissory form. Um, in the promise given to Adam in the garden. Notice this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. And so there is this 
uh, revelation that is emphasized in opposition to administration or dispensation because of the fact that the covenant itself is not, um, the covenant of grace is not formally and properly a covenant until Christ ratifies it in his blood. Um, so the first revelation of the covenant of grace we see to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. And I would want to emphasize that there's something important here with regards to the emphasis upon Adam with regards to the covenant of grace and the absence of language with regards to Abraham concerning the covenant of grace. The, the Baptistic, our Baptistic forerunners are more Christological and Christocentric in their covenant theology than their paedo-baptistic um, uh, forerunners who emphasize, and necessarily so, the Abrahamic reality of the Abrahamic reality of the covenant of grace because they're, they're obligated to because of their sacrament of baptism, which includes obviously the baptism of infants. The language of Abraham and his seed um, is predominant in the formulation of paedo-baptistic covenant theology. And we see the absence of that in the Baptist formulation, I think, not I think, because the emphasis on Adam brings to the fore the reality that that's the proto-gospel in the garden. That's the, the first announcement of the covenant of grace, the promise that there will be a hero born of woman who will crush the serpent with his heel. And then after that, we have subsequent anticipatory revelation of the covenant of grace. Notice the language here of farther steps. This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterward by farther steps. So there is subsequent anticipatory revelation of the covenant of grace that follows the promise given to Adam um, in the garden before his, uh, before his exile. So there's this progressive, a divinely intended, divinely designed progressive revelation in redemptive history where light builds upon light until the full discovery of the covenant of, of grace comes with the new covenant in the first advent of Christ. This is a, this is a quote from, a, from an English churchman, an English minister, uh, Church of England guy, who would have been preaching and writing just before or around the time that the, uh, the Baptists penned their confession in 1677. Um, this is Robert South, um, a paedo-baptist, speaking with regards to the covenant of grace and he uses the identical language that our Baptists' forerunners use with regards to farther steps and full discovery, and he helps to sort of explain or elaborate upon what is meant by farther steps until. He says, he preached in a sermon, he that at first was known only as the seed of the woman was in process of time known to be the seed of Abraham, and after that, the seed of David and from thence proceeding to greater particularities relating to the manner of his coming, he was known to be born of a virgin, and for the place where to be born at Bethlehem, and for, this per, uh, for his person and condition that he should be a man of sorrows, and that he should suffer and die for sin, that he should rise again, 
that he should ascend into heaven and lead captivity captive. And he's citing Old Testament passages as he moves along. That he should reign till he had subdued his enemies and saw the world brought under him. Thus, by a continual gradation, the promise advanced itself with further steps and increases, shining more and more unto a perfect day, displaying fresh, fuller discoveries through several ages of the world, every new degree of manifestation being a mercy great enough to oblige an age. So you see this language of, uh, of covenant with regards to the progressive revelation of that covenant of grace, the promise in promise form first made to Adam, but then as we move now to the terminal accomplishment of the covenant of grace, its full discovery is completed in the, in the New Testament. So the, the terminal accomplishment of the covenant of grace. We would want to note with some qualification that the new covenant is the covenant of grace. This is why we only baptize believers who have a, a legitimate profession of faith, that, we only, uh, that it is only the elect, born again, regenerated, and believing, um, that are to be the proper subjects of baptism. One of the, one of the reasons. The New Testament, this is uh, Pascal Deneau, the New Testament brings the full revelation of the covenant of grace since the new covenant is its accomplishment. The Baptists considered that the new covenant and it alone was the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace revealed to Adam and then to Abraham was the new covenant promised. He notes that there's distinction without separation. And what that means is with a measure of identity between the new covenant and the covenant of grace, there is a distinction in that, remember, it's in promissory form, promise form, when it's given to Adam and as farther steps are revealed, and then it comes to full discovery or completion in the New Testament with the advent of Christ, specifically with the shedding of his blood, the blood of ratification, and his resurrection. So until the full discovery therein was complete, thereof was completed in the New Testament, promissory revelation culminating in ratification of covenant, promise form in the OT, building to confirmation of and as covenant in the New Testament. Just some quotes with regards to that from some Pado baptists and some uh, particular Baptists such as John Owen. Anybody get that joke? Okay. Um, Charnock. The first appearance at the dawning is an, er is an earnest that the victory will be complete at last. God did not make a full discovery of Christ to Adam. His revelations of him grew brighter with every age. The nearer his coming, the clearer was the foresight of him. John Owen. And as it was their wisdom and their grace to rejoice in the light that they had in the Old Testament, or in, in, the, uh, yeah, in, the, in the Old Testament, and in those typical administrations of divine worship, which shadowed out the glory of Christ unto them, yet did always pant after that more excellent light and full discovery of it, which was to be, ma uh, which was to be made by the gospel. And herein consists the principal advantage of the New Testament above the Old. For although the work of the new creation was begun and carried out on secretly and virtually under the Old Testament, yet they had not a full discovery of the economy of the Holy Trinity therein, which was not evidently manifest until the whole work was illustriously brought to light by the gospel. 
And then uh, one last one here by Pascal Deneau. The distinction between the revelation and the administration of the covenant of grace finds its whole meaning when the second element of Baptist covenant theology is added to it. That is to say, the full revelation of the covenant of grace in the new covenant. If Westminster covenant theology can be summarized as one covenant under two administrations, that of the 1689 would be one covenant revealed progressively and concluded formally under the new covenant. So that's an important, it's a very important distinction that is being made there. And it's an important distinction that, that, um, that brings import to the doctrine of baptism and also the doctrine uh, of the church, not to mention implications for doctrines such as soteriology uh, and other things, more, more implications than explicit um, uh, doing of violence to, to soteriology, but uh, that, that would take another session. So as we, as we close here, just two very quick points. No, notice the foundation of the covenant of grace. Um, and it is near the sort of top middle. Uh, and it is founded, that is the covenant of grace is, it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the father and the son about the redemption of the elect. So we see the foundation for the covenant of grace is the covenant of redemption. Um, and there will be a little bit more to say about that when we get to chapter 8, because chapter 8, like the Savoy, um, and unlike the Westminster Confession of Faith, adds a particular clause in the doctrine of Christ the mediator with regards to the covenant of redemption, the language or the clause according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator um, between God and man. But uh, all of that to say the covenant of grace is founded on that blessed foundation, the covenant of redemption, which was for Christ a covenant of works um, that was between the Father and Son about the redemption of the elect. So the covenant of grace, our salvation, the salvation of the elect by amazing and victorious grace is founded upon that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and Son about the redemption of the elect. And then lastly, the exclusivity of the covenant of grace in its relation to the covenant of works. Notice the last set of clauses in paragraph 3, and it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and a blessed immortality. Man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. So we have the exclusivity of the covenant of grace. It's only by that covenant that any of the posterity of Adam are saved. Any sinner uh, under, uh, you know, under God's good heaven that is to be saved is saved by virtue of the covenant of grace having been fully discovered in the New Testament. And, of course, no one can be saved by that covenant of works, it having been broken, man having been thrusted into sin and depravity and inability with only the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ can set him free. And that Lord Jesus Christ is the covenant champion, the covenant maker became the covenant keeper in his in incarnation that covenant breakers might become the friends of God by amazing and victorious grace and the perfection of his work. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to reflect uh, well and fondly upon doctrines such as this. We thank you for what the Bible reveals with regards to covenant, uh, your voluntary condescension uh, to such as us to disclose and declare the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation by him. We pray that we would be blessed by a knowledge of our God today, by a knowledge of our Christ. We pray that you would help us as we go into worship to worship you in spirit and in truth. Give us your Holy Spirit that we might properly hallow and worship your most high name. We pray.